one of the biggest doctrines drawing people to or away from Catholicism is the Eucharist. So why do Catholics believe in it so strongly, given that it's such a hard teaching? Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe Heschmeyer. It's year B of the liturgical cycle, and that means by the time this episode has come out, we've heard from John 6 in the Gospel on the weekends two times. And what's more, we're going to continue to hear from John chapter 6 for the next three weekends following when this episode comes out. So why is John 6 so important? Well, simply put, we spend five weeks out of the year this year looking at John chapter 6 because it's the clearest presentation of Jesus' teaching on the Eucharist which is the source and summit of the Christian life. It's the real heart Mm -hmm. of the Christian faith. It's also the source of a lot of confusion when it comes to conversations between Catholics and Protestants. So what's a good way to understand where Protestants are coming from when we talk to them about the Eucharist? Yeah, so there's actually a wide variety of Protestant beliefs about the Eucharist. One of the common mistakes that I think Catholics can make is to assume that all Protestants hold the same view, that the Eucharist is merely a symbol and that there's no real spiritual reality or real change at all that goes on. And there are people who hold to that kind of extreme view. But in the middle, you'll find Lutherans and others who have something closer to consubstantiation. So the Lutheran belief classically is that Jesus is present in, with, and under the bread and wine, but that it still remains bread and wine. So something more than a mere symbol, Christ is somehow present there, Um, But it's less than the full real presence, and certainly less than transubstantiation. The bread and wine don't cease to be bread and wine. Christ is just somehow present in them in a a unique way. Um, But even there, he's only present during the liturgical celebration. So that obviously is a very different view than what we hold. It's also a very different view than what, say, a Baptist would hold. So I think the first thing we need to do is sort of step back and say, okay, It isn't just that Catholics don't agree with Protestants on John 6 or on the Eucharist. Protestants don't agree with Protestants on John 6 and on the Eucharist, as with, you know, many other doctrines. There's going to be a a wide variety of beliefs because there's no magisterium. There's no church that can kind of settle these questions. So some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah and one of the prophets. So when we talk about it, I think it's important to get that just right out the gate. It isn't enough for us as Catholics to say something is happening in the Eucharist or... The real presence in some sense is true, because there are a lot of Protestants who will say, well, yeah, we think that too. John 6 does more, and it, it does more to show the truth of what we would call transubstantiation, that the bread and wine cease to be bread and wine and become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that this happens at the Last Supper and happens at every Mass since. I think that differentiation is really important for a lot of the times when we talk about apologetics here on the show, we really emphasize you're talking with a human being who has a story and being able to start that conversation with asking what their belief is about the Eucharist is a great place to start. I had a really fascinating experience talking to a young woman who is uh, Pentecostal or Assemblies of God, Mm -hmm. and she was very ready to believe in the Eucharist as a miracle because she came from a tradition that had a lot of miracles. Yeah. So... We expect that this is going to be a sticking point for everyone. And for some people, it's the last thing they believe. But there may be other people it's the easiest part to believe in. They're fine with the miracles. They have a lot more trouble with the structure or the formality. 
Uh, so, you you know, like, like you were saying, you want to just not put people in boxes and assume everyone's going to view this the same way. Really get to know where they're coming from, but also know your own faith. Know yeah. why you believe what you do so that you can share where you're coming from. So let's talk a little bit more about John 6, where we've been hearing a lot in the Gospels on the weekends. What's the importance of John 6 as a scriptural passage? And what does it say about the Eucharist? What are we finding in there? So it's a fascinating passage. John chapter 6 is this huge, long discourse. It's one of the longest chapters in the Bible, and it's almost exclusively uh, teaching about the Eucharist. So if you follow the context, you've got four verses in which John just lays the scene. He explains where Jesus is. And significantly, in John 6, chapter 4, he says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now why does that matter? Because the next year, the next Passover, is Holy Thursday. It's the Last Supper. It's the institution of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. So this is quite literally foreshadowing the Eucharist. It's also calling to mind any reader the Passover, of course. I mean, explicitly it's calling to mind the Passover. Yeah. So when St. Paul, for example, says that Christ, our Paschal, which means Passover lamb, mm -hmm. has been sacrificed, he's making the same connection. So we need to be reading this with one eye backwards to the Passover, and when I forward to the Last Supper. It also is good context, too. Uh, this is a small thing. But when it says that Christ is breaking the bread, we know because it's Passover time that this is unleavened bread, which is right. why it breaks rather than tears. Why does that matter? Because throughout the book of Acts, the Christian celebrations are described as the breaking of the bread, which means that this is something like the Passover Eucharistic feast going on here. It's subtle verbiage, but it's pretty important. So that's the first four verses. From John 5 to 15, we have the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves. It shows that Jesus isn't bound by the normal rules of physics and dimensionality. If he can make bread enough to feed 5,000 people, he can make the Eucharist happen. Then from 16 to 21, you have something of a scene change. Um, the apostles cross the water on the boat. Jesus walks across the water. Again, it shows his power even over nature. And that leads into the big Eucharistic part, beginning with John 6, verse 22, and going all the way, really, through verse 71. And so throughout there, there's a whole dialogue in which he leads people into a, a real belief that his flesh and blood really is food to be given for the life of the world. Why isn't this, especially for Protestants who are sola scriptura, who believe that it is in scripture alone that our faith is based, why isn't this a common ground? You know, it's a good question. Um, I think in many ways it's because no one really comes to scripture totally tabula rasa, totally a blank slate. Mm -hmm. You come with a certain set of preconceived notions. So if you grew up Catholic, if you grew up believing in the real presence, you read this and you say, well, of course, I know sense. what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have any frame of reference for that, whatever you're conjuring in your mind isn't that. So I'll give you an example. Like, let's say you grew up in a world with zebras, but not horses. Say okay. you live in parts of Africa. If you're reading about a four-legged animal that's, you know, equine, you are probably visualizing a zebra. Yeah. Whereas your counterpart in North America is probably visualizing a horse because their frame of reference is shaped by their lived experience. Right. So it isn't that Protestants are just being stubborn. It's that they don't have the frame of reference we have of recognizing that this is a description of the Eucharist. So they're just missing it. And so if you talk to converts frequently, they'll have this sort of story of like, I never noticed that was there. It's like they just overlook it. They they read it expecting to see a certain thing, 
And it isn't until you really can sit with them and walk them through it that you can show that it actually says something very different than what they might have expected. Christ says in John 6 that we should eat his body and drink his blood. And then his followers start leaving. But instead of saying like, no, guys, I was just that was a it was a metaphor. It was just another parable. He doubles down on his language. And the, in the Greek, correct me, my Greek is very minimal. It's trogar to, yeah, to, to gnaw on. on. Like he becomes more animalistic in his terminology where it gets more brutal. It gets more, this is no, this is really my flesh. This is really my blood. Why should we take John 6 literally when a lot of scripture, we have examples of Christ speaking metaphorically or Christ speaking in parables? Yeah, that's a good question, especially in the context of John's gospel. So let me make kind of the Protestant case for a second yeah, and then show why it doesn't work. So the Protestant case would be something like this. In John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. They take him literally to be referring to the temple. He's actually speaking metaphorically about his own body. Right, the resurrection. John 3, he says you have to be born again. Nicodemus takes him literally. He's actually speaking metaphorically about spiritual rebirth. John 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman about living water. She takes him literally to be talking about water. He's actually talking about himself as like the spiritual renewal. Right. John 8... He talks about being like the son of Abraham and they take him literally to be talking about biological descent and he's talking about spiritually sons and daughters of Abraham. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of examples within John's gospel in which people take him overly literally. And so I appreciate when Protestants bring up, why do you take this literally? Now, some Protestants who bring this up want to take everything in the Bible literally and will pride themselves on, you know, being very literal biblical Christians, in which case they've completely undermined their own claim when <laughs> they start bringing up all these examples in which literalism is not the right interpretation, mm -hmm. uh, is explicitly not the right interpretation. But what makes John 6 different than John 2, 3, 4, and 8? I think there are two things. The first is that in John 6, Jesus leads the crowd into literalism. So those other four examples they take an initial reaction that's very literal. And then either Jesus or John, as the writer, has to correct and say, basically, and they miss the point. Here, the crowd actually begins uh, with not a literal interpretation. So in John 6, verses 32 to 33, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Quick point on this. Remember that Jesus has already connected this to the Passover. Right. Here, he's also connecting it to the manna. So we should have one eye backwards towards the manna and one eye forwards to say, what is the new manna? Like, what is the manna yeah, the of, of Christianity? Mm -hmm. He says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's presenting himself as the new manna. And the people... They think he's referring literally to bread, but they don't think he's literally referring to himself. And we see this from John 6, 34, where they say, Lord, give us this bread always. And they're just coming off. The multiplication, the, right, exactly. Right. Like bread is on their mind. Yeah. Right. Because they keep trying to press him for free food because right. they now realize he can give them free food. And so they've got totally, I want to call it a college student mindset. Like, <laughs> what are the goodies? Right. And he's saying that is... Don't get caught up in the door prizes. Right. Like, this is about something much bigger. So then he approaches the topic a second time. Uh, and this culminates in John 6, 41. And he says, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, the crowd still, they still don't take him literally to be saying that he is bread. 
They still don't take him literally to say, eat my flesh. They get caught up on one aspect. How can he say he came down from heaven? So they're caught up on a different aspect of the literalism that he says he's from heaven. But notice also that literalism is correct. Yeah, he He really did did come from from heaven. And so they've disregarded the bread reference entirely, assuming it to be metaphorical. And so Jesus comes at it a third time. This is the third approach. And this time, here's what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So far, so good. But then he says, and the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he's really drawing their attention to the physicality, the literalism, the incarnational grittiness of the Eucharist. And it's only this third time that they start to take him literally to mean the real presence. So that's the first major difference. You don't have people just at first brush taking him overly literally. At first brush, they thought he was just talking about loaves of bread. That's the similarity to 2, 3, 4, and 8. But in John 6, something different is happening. You know, if three different times he'd reworded things to Nicodemus to make it more and more graphic, the kind of rebirth he was talking about, then we'd have to say, maybe we're wrong in thinking this is a metaphor. But there's nothing like that. The second one is that in John 6, there's no correction. So in the other examples, we see a correction every time. In John 2, we talk about the temple of his body. John notes in 2.21 that he's referring to his body. Uh, John 3, Jesus immediately corrects Nicodemus's misunderstanding in verses 5 to 8 and explains what the kind of rebirth that he means is a spiritual rebirth. In John 4, Jesus corrects the woman at the well. And so especially uh, we see in verse 28, she leaves the water jar behind to follow Jesus. That shows very clearly she gets it's not physical water mm-hmm. she's looking for, but spiritual. And then in John 8, on uh, verse 33, when people think he's talking about physical slavery, he talks about spiritual slavery. This is verse 34 to 38. And then he does the same thing about being a physical versus a spiritual descendant of Abraham. So Jesus corrects the misunderstandings, the over-literal language. The only time he doesn't is in John 2. There's a special reason for that. Their misunderstanding will be the charge that condemns him to the cross, thus paradoxically fulfilling the prophecy he's actually making in John 2. That happens in the Passion. It's like the foreshadowing. And yeah, and even there, John, as the author, explains that they're getting it wrong. So there's an immediate correction in each of those four instances. But in John 6, as we just saw, there's not a correction. There's an, or if there is a correction, it's towards ever increasing literalism. And so it actually goes even beyond what I read before. If you look at verses 53 to 58, we see Jesus really honing in on the literalism. Now, the prompt here is that the people are finally asking the right question. John 6, 52, they say, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? If this is like the other ones, if this is like the Samaritan woman at the well, if this is like Nicodemus, we would expect Jesus to immediately say, basically, you you know, you silly crowd, why did you misunderstand this? This is all a metaphor. It's about spiritual eating or etc. Here's what he does instead. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, 
You have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. If that wasn't good enough, he then goes on and says, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And if that wasn't good enough, he goes on and says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. And then he concludes, This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now he's very graphically, very explicitly, repeatedly clarified that what he means by this bread is his flesh, which is to be offered up for the life of the world, and is to be consumed. Now, Protestants take the first half of that, literally. They don't think Jesus' death on the cross was a metaphor or a symbol. Yeah, that's a good point. They're not Gnostics. But they take the second half metaphorically. It's like they swap so, halfway through. Right. They, they take an interpretation that's half metaphorical mm-hmm. at just a random point because they find part of it too hard to believe. But this is the incredible thing, is that the crowd's response is, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That's verse 60. So whatever Jesus is saying here, John wants us to know it's a hard saying such that the followers of Jesus freaked out and wanted to leave. And that Jesus presses this again after that. And so in verse 66, this is John 6, 66. It says, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Now you might think, okay, it's costing him followers. Surely he's not going to, you know, once people are unliking Jesus, they're not going <laughs> to... Unfollowing, I don't want to see exactly. this timeline. Exactly, <laughs> right. Uh, surely then he's going to clarify. But instead mm-hmm. he presses even the apostles. Yeah. And says in the next verse, will you also go away? So this entire chapter, he's been pressing harder and harder and harder on this point. And when the crowds cry, uncle... He starts pressing on the apostles Mm -hmm. and saying, are you also going to cry, uncle? Like, this is something crucial. This is huge. And it can't be reduced to him simply saying, hey, believe in me. Mm -hmm. Because he's been saying that throughout his entire ministry. He's clearly saying something bigger than that. He's clearly saying something bigger than a generic, hey, have faith. And it's increasingly obvious as you read carefully and prayerfully through this passage that he moves into ever-increasing literal language and then leaves the crowds and the apostles and the readers of Scripture with this provocative invitation, will you accept or reject an invitation to the banquet that is Christ's body? So as Catholics, the Catholic Church, we do take John 6 literally. We do believe the Eucharist is Christ's body and blood. We do believe that when we consume the Eucharist at Mass, Christ is physically present within us. And like the beautiful practice of, of the Thanksgiving at Mass, because this is the closest that you get to Christ being physically present within you. But what happens, what are the ramifications if we take the Protestant understanding of John 6 and what if they're right? What if we take the more metaphorical route? What's the effects of this? Yeah, so again, I mean, acknowledging that there's a diversity of Protestant beliefs. If you read what Protestant commentators actually say, a good question is, does this actually make sense of the passage? Does this account for the way Jesus is behaving towards the crowds? Does it account for the crowd's response to Jesus? Remember, 
These are people who've been following him, who've been looking up to him as a shepherd. These are people who've just seen him perform a miracle. Are they really going to balk at something as simple as have some faith? So I want to give a little bit of context here. So Matthew Henry has a pretty famous commentary of scripture from a Protestant perspective. And he explicitly says, eating this flesh and drinking this blood mean believing in Christ. We partake of Christ and his benefits by faith. If that's all he's saying, that's the least controversial kind of teaching that he has. It's very tame for Jesus. Right. I mean, <laughs> the chapter prior in John 5, uh, let me read verse 15 to 18, just to give you kind of a sense of where Jesus is in the action. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews persecuted Jesus, because he did this on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working still, and I am working. This was why the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his father, making himself equal with God. So we're supposed to believe that a guy who, in John 6, has people following him after he's just publicly declared himself equal to God, that they're fine still following him until he says, believe in me. It doesn't make sense. No, it's not logical. Of course, if he's God, we need to believe in him. All he's doing is reiterating the same message he said the prior five chapters. He should have more followers. They should be like right. bringing their friends. That's why that they were following him in the right. first place. He has to be saying something new and controversial and shocking, or you've just done bad exegesis. So, yeah, he also, I mean, also in John 5, so just setting this more, he declares himself the one who will come to judge the world in the last day. These are hefty claims. Compared to that, believe in me, have faith in me. Not that shocking compared to, I'm the one who will come to judge the world in the last days. I'm equal to God the Father. Also in John 5, uh, verses 39 to 40, and then again in 46, he talks about how, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. He's claiming to be the one Moses wrote about. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of scripture. He's claiming to be the one scripture is about. That's way more provocative than simply believe in me. And yet this crowd in John 6 is following him after all that. So whatever he's saying in John 6 has to be so shocking that those people are willing to fall away. How do other Protestants' beliefs line up when we're looking at them according to this metaphorical interpretation? John Calvin says um, that when Jesus' disciples declare his teaching a hard teaching, he says, on the contrary, it was in their hearts and not in the saying that the harshness lay. But out of the word of God, the reprobator thus accustomed to form stones to dash themselves upon. And when by their hardened obstinacy they rush against Christ, they complain that his saying is harsh, which ought rather to have softened them. In other words, he's just saying, oh no, it's not a hard claim. That's not, uh, yeah. that's just not in the passage. Mm -mm. He's just denying the scriptural evidence. Because this is a hard claim, Jesus is willing to lose followers over it. And the idea that these are just like rotten people in the crowds. These are people we see Christ carefully ministering to throughout John 6, and then pressing and pressing and pressing on this particular point of doctrine. So that's what Calvin had to say about the Bread of Life discourse in John 6. What about an example from more modern times? Barclay, in his commentary, similarly talks about, uh, he says this, 
To most of us, this is a very difficult passage. It speaks in language and moves in a world of ideas which are quite strange to us, and which may seem even fantastic and grotesque. But to those who first heard it, it was moving along familiar ideas which went back to the very childhood of the race. But of course, that, that does no. no credit. They say this is a hard teaching who can believe it. Not, this is what we've been hearing for all of humanity. This would only be strange to people writing many centuries from now. We see that these Protestant interpretations just miss it and miss it and miss it. And they can't account for the dynamism uh, of the chapter itself. I might, if I may, just one more. The Enduring Word commentary says... It's probable that the Jewish leaders willfully misunderstood Jesus at this point. This point being, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He just explained that the bread was his body that would be given a sacrifice for the life of the world. They willfully twisted his words to imply a bizarre cannibalism. But the thing is, they didn't willfully misunderstand him. They mm -hmm. slowly understood him. Right. If Opposite. you follow the passage very carefully, you'll see they misunderstood, misunderstood, misunderstood. And then finally got it. And Jesus corrects the first misunderstandings, mm -hmm. doesn't correct the fourth one. If this is a bizarre caricature of his belief, if they've just said, oh, you're a cannibal, and he just lets that accusation go, that's a serious thing. So this is something that is somewhat foreign to us today. But in the ancient world, if someone charged you with a crime to your face, or they charged you to your face, and you didn't answer it, you were considered to have agreed to it. Your silence implied that you consented. And so when they accuse him of holding this teaching, his silence here would be read that he did, in fact, hold the teaching. And so if they're saying cannibalism, that's a big thing. He would be answering that. If they're misunderstanding what he's saying, seemingly, he'd want to correct that. I mean, obviously, you can't say Christ is going to be bound by this custom. But you should know that this custom existed. So he is at this point seemingly either intentionally misleading the people or he's teaching the real presence. Digging into that a little bit, what if, so the Protestant turns on and says, okay, so Catholics are cannibals. So Catholics believe that you eat the physical body and blood of Christ. What's the answer to that when that comes up in conversation? I think the answer to that is twofold. The first thing I like to point out is that this was an accusation that the ancient Romans had against the early Christians. Uh, Felix Munisus, I believe, he accused the Christians of devouring the baby Jesus in the manger covered in grain. And he had somehow confused the nativity scene and the Eucharistic altar mm. and then had a pretty barbaric misunderstanding of the whole thing. Yeah. But I would say to anyone listening to this, if your Eucharistic theology isn't capable of that kind of misinterpretation, it's not the Eucharistic theology of the early church. But second... We should remember that it is a misunderstanding because cannibalism implies the consumption and corruption of the one being consumed. This is a, a radical kind of inversion here. And I want to do another podcast episode on the church fathers and what they have to say on the Eucharist. But I'll give you a little bit of a, a hint. St. Gregory of Nyssa talks about the Eucharist in a beautiful way. He lays out the case for the real presence and its effects in this way. Step one, he basically says, animals eat things and metabolize, as do humans. Mm -hmm. You eat it, it becomes part of your body. You drink it, it becomes part of your blood. Right. As a result, step two, when Jesus, in the ordinary course of life, ate bread and consumed wine, which were standard fare, right. they became his body and blood. 
This is a cool point because it mm-hmm. means that a Protestant who's denying transubstantiation has to at least affirm thousands of times throughout his life Jesus turned bread and wine into his own body and blood. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, I hadn't either. Yeah. St. Gregory thinks about it that way. Yeah. It's a brilliant insight mm-hmm. that naturally, through metabolism, the divine body is turning bread and wine into itself. And then he says in step three, I mean, I'm adding the steps, but it, as the course's <laughs> argument goes, that what normally happens slowly through metabolism, Christ does instantaneously and miraculously at the Last Supper. He changes bread and wine into his body and blood. Yeah. Instantaneously. Mm-hmm. But then he has a fourth step, which is beautiful and profound. He says this, when you eat something, you preserve it from its natural corruption. Here's what I mean. If you have a loaf of bread and you leave it on the counter, after a few days it's going to go moldy. Wine allegedly goes bad if you leave it unopened and don't drink it in time. But fortunately, we don't need to let it suffer that fate. (laughs) We can eat bread, we can drink wine. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? So let's say two weeks of leaving a loaf of bread out, it, it goes moldy. Yeah. Let's say there's another loaf of bread and you eat it. Your arm doesn't suddenly grow like bread mold. Your body doesn't suddenly get covered and, you know, mold from this bread. Because what happened? You incorporated it into a living body and therefore preserved this otherwise dead thing from corruption. Well, Gregory's last point is that when we consume the Eucharist, that happens to us. We become incorporated into the immortal body of Christ. We are preserved uh, from corruption. And that this is like the spiritual, like incorruptibility. It's spiritual eternal life. And that this happens through a sort of spiritual, if you will, metabolism, which means change. So how does what St. Gregory is saying here tie back to what we've been talking about with the bread of life discourse that we find in John chapter 6? Because Jesus says that the one who eats his flesh and drinks his blood, will be raised up on the last day. So this promise of immortality, this promise of preservation from eternal corruption, is actually present there in the text. It isn't just Gregory running away with the metaphor of metabolism. Mm. It's all right there. But there are other places as well in which we can talk about Scripture pointing to this reality. Yeah, let's do that. Where else in Scripture can we find the Eucharistic reality of what, what we believe the Eucharist is to be? I would look to 1 Corinthians 10. And so, for the point we were just making, the part I would look at is in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, where St. Paul says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Well, what does he mean by one body? He explains all that in 1 Corinthians 12. We are one body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, what is the body of Christ? It's the church. And so, the entire church is formed... Through the Eucharist. This is why we call it communion. Yeah. It's communion with the church. And we see this in the word itself. Look at the similarities between the word communion and the word community. They share the same root. They're they're rooted in that same language. And so we don't just eat the Eucharist because we have communion. We have communion because we receive the Eucharist. That's what he says. Because we partake of the one loaf. Mm -hmm. Now... I've mentioned this before, and I've never been able to find where I read this. But I think Pope Benedict is the one who pointed out in his earlier work as Cardinal Ratzinger that the one loaf reference clearly signifies that it's our Eucharistic Lord. Because if he just literally means loaves of bread, we don't all partake of one loaf. 
Well, there isn't just like one giant piece of bread that all Protestants are going to when they want symbolic Eucharist. Right. That's been around since Christ mentioned it and it's doing well. That would be a pretty miraculous piece of bread itself. Yeah. Rather, the one loaf is Christ. Mm -hmm. But to partake of the one loaf there explicitly is a Eucharistic reference. You have to see it in the context. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And then the cup of blessing is the term for the third cup in the Passover. Mm-hmm. So he's got an eye towards the Passover yep. and an eye towards the Eucharist. Just like John has in John 6. Then he says, the bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are one body, or sorry, we, are, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Some translations will say one bread, but it literally is one loaf. So he's putting this in the Eucharistic context and talking about this participation being a participation in our Eucharistic Lord. It's a participation in his body and blood. Very explicitly. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've had Protestants read that and say, well, he says bread. Why wouldn't we just take him to literally mean bread? Well, there's your answer right there. He actually says loaf. And you can't take that to literally mean lo- loaves of bread because there's more than one. Let's talk about that a little bit more. How is Paul's Eucharistic theology meshing with John's discourse in the bread of life that we find in John 6? He starts out also looking to the Old Testament. We just saw the reference back to the Passover. But he begins by warning. This is a warning we Catholics should take very seriously. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same supernatural food. And all drank the same supernatural drink. What's he talking about? Well, he goes on and says, For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things are warnings for us, not to desire evil as they did. Okay. So he's looking back at the history of Israel, specifically the Exodus, and he's saying the parting of the Red Sea prefigures baptism. It's a passing through water, leaving the place of sin towards the promised land. But this whole life is like the Exodus. It's the journey. And on that journey, they have supernatural food, the manna from heaven. Mm -hmm. Notice again, like John 6, one eye on the manna, one eye on the Eucharist. And supernatural drink. Now, this is unique. Jesus doesn't mention this explicitly in John 6. Paul's pointing this out. During this pilgrimage that they have from Egypt into the Promised Land, there's a rock which brings forth water. And he says that the rock was Christ. So they're receiving water from the side of Christ. Now, that is obviously a reference for the church. Because when Christ is on the cross, what comes out? Blood and water which is what you see with the Eucharist. You know, you got the waters of baptism, you got the blood of the Eucharist. Right. And the mingling of the wine and water mm-hmm. signifies this mystery. So he's calling people to like the sacramental prefiguration that happens throughout the Exodus. That if you look at the Exodus as the journey of the church from sin to heaven, you see the sacraments prefigured there. But he warns them, that's not enough. That you can receive all the sacraments still be an idolater, still fall away, still go to hell. Yeah. And he says, these things are a warning to us. 
Well, these things are only a warning to us if they prefigure and parallel our reality. So that's the kind of framework that we need to like read 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 in. How do we know that St. Paul is, is talking explicitly about the Eucharist and not just a metaphorical body of Christ um, passage in 1 Corinthians? In verse 17 through 22, he talks about abuses that happen at these early Christian Eucharists. In verse 23 um, on to verse 26, he explains how Christ instituted the Eucharist at the Last Supper. And then uh, the two verses after that, 27 and 28, or 27 and 29 will go. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So the Eucharist, which is what he's just described explicitly right before that, mm -hmm. is such an intense reality that if you don't recognize the body and blood of Christ therein, when you go up to receive, you are damning yourself to hell. That's what he's saying. You're eating and drinking condemnation and judgment upon yourself. And it shows what he said at the beginning of 10. You can receive the sacraments and still go to hell if your heart's not in the right place with them. The sacraments are not a replacement for faith. They're not a replacement for having a right relationship with God. And so there is such a thing, you know, as unworthy reception. There's one more part, if I can belabor this a little bit, about 1 Corinthians 10, connecting it to John 6. I mentioned at the top of the episode that there are different Protestants with different beliefs, and that some will recognize Christ as being somehow spiritually present. Paul shows that this isn't just a mere presence, that the Eucharist is actually a sacrifice. Now, this is a point upon which Catholics and Protestants tend to differ very markedly. The Catholic view is that in the Mass, through the Holy Spirit, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus Christ and are then offered to God the Father. It's a perfect Trinitarian offering. Our offerings, signified in the bread and wine, the work of human hands, are transformed. Our sacrifice is united with his sacrifice and offered to the Father. So it's all about the sacrifice of the Mass. Protestants don't believe, even Protestants who have a higher view of, of Eucharistic theology, they don't believe what they're doing is offering a sacrifice to the Father. In fact, many Protestants would say that's blasphemous. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all on Calvary. St. Paul is very clear, although in a subtle way, that a sacrifice is actually going on. So we just heard earlier, verses 16 and 17, we who are many are one body because mm -hmm. of the one loaf. And then he says this, he says, consider the practice of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply, though at pagan sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. This is a trifold parallel. He's comparing Judaism, paganism, and Christianity. And he's saying the Jews, when they sacrifice on the altar and they eat the sacrifice, eating the sacrifice makes them partners in the altar. Right. That's a huge critical point. Yeah. Because 
Protestants will say, why do you have the Eucharist if Good Friday already happened? Mm -hmm. Because eating the sacrifice is how you become a partaker in the altar. In the Passover, you have the slaying of the lamb, you have the smearing of the blood over the doorposts, and then you have the eating of Mm -hmm. the lamb. Christ has been slain, his blood has been smeared over the doorposts of the cross, and now we eat his flesh. That's the part they're missing. That's not a second sacrifice. It's a participation continually in the one eternal sacrifice. But if you don't do that, the sacrifice is incomplete because you have not become a partaker. So he said those who eat the sacrifices are partners in the altar. Right after he said, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He's connecting those two things. This is a sacrificial participation at the altar. And we know we call it the Lord's Supper table and those sorts of things, which sounds very like familial. But notice his language about the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What is the table of demons? A sacrificial altar. So he says the demons are getting sacrificed at the table and the people eating those sacrifices are becoming partners with them. The Jews, when they sacrifice in the temple and then eat that, become partakers of it. And so we, at the table of the Lord, partake of that and participate with the Lord. That threefold parallel, I cannot stress this enough, only makes sense if the Eucharist truly is a sacrifice. And that's like a biblical understanding of what the Eucharist is. Like Paul is writing to the early church. This is not something the Catholic Church makes up in the Middle Ages or something that's just, oh, we made this up at some point along our history. This is the beginning. Yeah, like so far we've just looked at what Scripture says and then looked at, you know, briefly about Protestant commentaries on it. Yeah. Fail to interpret Scripture. But we're just looking, what are the Scriptures saying? Mm -hmm. How can we interpret them faithfully in how they were meant to be read? To sum it up. What can we as Catholics conclude from Scripture when it comes to teaching on the Eucharist? We can see quite clearly this is a major doctrine. The fact that we spend five Sundays out of mm-hmm. the year talking about it in year B shows that the practice of the church shows it. The fact that basically all of John 6 is about this and that Jesus says it over and over and over again. And we haven't even talked about the Last Supper discourse in Matthew, mm-hmm. Mark, or Luke. We've glossed over it in St. Paul. This is huge We've not talked about Acts and all of the different references of the breaking of the bread or how it's central to the life of the church. We haven't looked at the early church at all. We haven't looked at any of the other times that, you know, we see the early Christians clearly believed this. This is what the earliest listeners of the apostles believed the apostles were saying. But all of that really focuses on one point. This is a huge doctrine. And what does this doctrine mean? It means quite seriously that Jesus' flesh is being offered for the life of the world and we can partake of it in the Eucharist. And if we do, we can become incorporated in his body and preserved from eternal destruction. This is why we aren't Protestants. Like, this is why we're Catholic. And in a serious way, this is why the church exists at all. Because participation in this one body is what makes us the mystical body of the church. Close out the episode in a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, a world without end.